Please join me in welcoming Japanese Gray. so much. So just a few months ago, I had my 20-year high school reunion. And although it has been two decades since I was in high school, I can distinctly recall a story that my 10th grade teacher told my class. And the story he told us was about when he himself had been our age and in high school. And he told us that there was a student in his class who was deemed to be the outcast, the bully taunted, made fun of all the time. One day in particular, a group of bullies surrounded that student in the hallway. Overpowering him, they dragged him out of the building towards the school's field where there was a flagpole. Those bullies had laid a net on the grass by the flagpole and they began to strip the student naked. They forced him into the net, wrapped the net around him and began to hoist it up the school's flagpole. As all of that was happening, another student saw it. He was outraged. And so he ran towards the bullies to try to take the student away from them. But they simply overpowered him and began to do to the second student what they were doing to the first. As all of that was happening, a crowd of students gathered on the field simply watching. In that crowd was then, as a student, my teacher. As he told my class that story, he said to us, looking back, if I could return to that very moment, and if I could take the place of anyone there that day, who do you think I wish I would have been? And he answered his own question by saying, the student who stood up in defense of the victimized boy. As I have reflected on that story many times over the years, what has struck me is that whenever an injustice occurs, whether it's the story I was told about, the situation of bullying, or any attack on vulnerable, weak, defenseless, or innocent life, whenever an injustice occurs, there's one of four roles to play. Victim, persecutor, bystander, or defender. Now, we don't always have a choice about whether we fit into that first category, that of victim. But we certainly do have a choice about which of the other three categories we will choose to step into. We are here tonight because we know when it comes to the injustice of abortion and the attack on the youngest of our kind, that our responsibility is to be defenders of preborn children. But what makes our role of defender in response to the injustice inflicted upon the preborn child different from that student's role of defender who tried to rescue the kid who was being victimized? What makes our response different is that unlike the student responding to bullying, we can't go and attempt to separate the preborn child from the womb of her mom. We can't take her out of the environment of danger. The preborn child needs the mother's body, and therefore, because the child has to stay put, our way of being defender is a little different. We need to use our powers of persuasion. We need to convince that woman in crisis and anyone around her influencing her 
to respect and protect that preborn child's life. And so what I want to do this evening is share with you what I have learned over the years through studying and through practice of how to best communicate the pro-life message to people so as to not just win an argument, but to win the very person that we're arguing with. And there's three things in particular that I'd like to do this evening. The first is I want us to actually step into the shoes of the other side. And I want us to think for a moment about why people support abortion, what the reasoning is. Once we understand the other side, the second thing I want to do is reflect on how we as pro-lifers can respond by reaching people's minds. And the third thing I want to address is how we can respond by reaching people's hearts. In terms of that first thing, understanding where people are coming from, I'm a big believer in the power of questions. And a very general, open-ended question I like to ask someone is this. What do you think about abortion? And inevitably, unfortunately, if you ask the average person what they think about abortion, they're going to default to a pro-choice perspective. They might say, well, I personally wouldn't have one. I can't force my views on others. Or sometimes I think it's necessary. And so a good follow-up question is, okay, when do you think someone should be allowed an abortion? Under what circumstances is it permissible? And having debated people formally and informally for these last two decades and throughout my childhood as well, what I have found is that people inevitably focus on the difficult circumstances a woman in crisis finds herself in to justify abortion. They will say, what about rape? What if she's really poor? What if there's health problems for her or the child? Maybe she's really young. When I speak to teenagers, that's often the circumstance they say, too young, that's why abortion is needed. What if she has no support from her family? What if she's trying to finish her education? In each of those circumstances, we as pro-lifers can agree with the abortion supporter on something. What we can agree with them on is that to be pregnant in those circumstances would be hard. It would be difficult to be pregnant and 14. It would be difficult to be pregnant and poor. It would be excruciatingly difficult to be pregnant from rape. And so we can respond, I agree with you. That's a challenging situation. That's a difficult circumstance for someone to be in. Then what I like to do, believing not only in the power of questions, but also in the power of stories, is I will say, imagine this. Imagine someone is pregnant and not poor. Let's imagine that a couple months after giving birth, they hit some difficult times financially, to the point that this person can not adequately care for her born child and meet her child's needs. Would we allow that woman or anyone to kill the newborn child because of poverty? Now the abortion supporter will say, no, of course not. So then I ask a question. Why then would we allow someone to kill the preborn child because of poverty? And inevitably they say, well, there's a difference. The preborn isn't a child, the newborn is. So then what that shows us is the issue isn't poverty. The issue is when does life begin? The issue is, are embryos and fetuses equal to infants, or are they inferior? That's what we really need to wrestle with. Or take the circumstance of being too young. Imagine you have a 14-year-old pregnant. She doesn't think she's too young. 
mean, this whole reality TV show is built on this premise, right? So let's imagine that you've got a teenager, she's pregnant, she's excited to be pregnant. After her baby is born, give her a few months, and then she realizes, whoa, babies are a lot of work. And she's tired, she's exhausted, and she thinks, I'm too young to be a parent. That's the little story we end with a question. We ask the abortion supporter, would we allow that teenager, not quite 15, would we allow her to end the life of her born child because she thinks she's too young? The abortion supporter will say, no, of course not. So then we ask the question, why would we allow that same aged woman, teenager really, to kill the preborn child because of the age of the mom? That's different, they'll say. The fetus isn't a person. Ah, so then isn't that the question? How do we define a person? Are embryos and fetuses persons? Because clearly the abortion supporter won't kill persons. So what we need to figure out is whether embryos and fetuses are persons like us. Or take the circumstance of a poor prenatal diagnosis. Someone is told that their child has perhaps Down syndrome, and therefore they think abortion is acceptable. We ask them to consider a situation where someone is already born and has Down syndrome. Imagine going to your local grocery store, and as you're in the checkout line, someone's helping bag your groceries, and that person happens to have Down syndrome. Simple little story, we end with a question. Would it be acceptable for anyone to kill that 20-year-old grocery store worker just because that individual has Down syndrome? And the abortion supporter will say, well, obviously not. It's clearly wrong to kill that person. So then we ask, why then would we allow someone to kill the preborn child because the child has Down syndrome. That's different. The person begging your groceries at the age of 20 is a human, but the embryo or fetus isn't. So once again, that shows that we as pro-lifers need to make the case that the preborn child is human like the born. And we need to be able to make it in a way that not only reaches the head, but also reaches the heart. I think what's so important when it comes to communicating the pro-life message is that we have to help people change their perspective when it comes to difficult circumstances. We cannot necessarily eliminate the challenging situation. We can do our best to alleviate it, but we can't necessarily eliminate it. And in the case of a poor prenatal diagnosis, we certainly can't get rid of the underlying genetic problem. But can we shift our perspective and see the situation differently? Can we put on a different set of glasses and help someone shift from a negative perspective to a more positive perspective? As pro-lifers, I think that's part of our job, to help people see the positive in a difficult situation. So what I want to do now is play for you a video of, about someone who's helping change people's perspective when it comes to poor prenatal diagnosis. So let's take a look. Rick Budati's life has been all about beauty and the power of images. He spent years as a fashion photographer in Milan, Paris, and with a studio in New York, always shooting what fashion editors decreed to be beauty. Then, 15 years ago, when he considered photographing a woman with a disability, he was shocked at images in medical textbooks he consulted. Where, he asked, is the humanity? It doesn't work like this. That doesn't help. This doesn't help. This is sad. I have a look in 25 terrifying. years. There's other ways to present this. I've spoken to so many genetic counselors that have a family in front of them, and they say, okay, this is what your daughter's going to have. Read this. 
and they cover up the photographs of the family because it would freak the family right out. There's got to be something else that we can do. There's got to be another way to present that information to that family. So this is Kiara. Now, Those Kiara, medical pictures changed his life. Ever since then, he has devoted his talent to the disabled. People like Kiara. She has albinism, a congenital disorder that not only affects pigmentation, but vision. This is stunning. Oh, it's a great photograph. Yeah, I love the photograph. But they told her, no, don't be a dancer. You don't have enough vision to follow the choreography. You'll never dance in chorus. Find another dream. She said, no. She's New Zealand's Celtic dance champion. His pictures are nothing short of stunning and are being exhibited in public places around the world, aimed at changing how we see people who appear different. But he started with albinism. Who was your first person you photographed and you thought, oh, I see something oh, so yeah, different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was Christine. Christine walked into the studio and she's beautiful. She has long, long, long white hair, pale skin. But she walks in like that, no eye contact, no one word answers. This kid was teased every single day in her life. And it was like holding up a mirror and saying, look at yourself, you're magnificent. And she saw it and she just exploded. That's, that's her. I mean, she's so beautiful. And she changed right in front of the lens. She was nothing like the pictures of albinism he had found in medical textbooks. These are the images that I saw, but I also not only saw those images, I saw like freak circus sure. albino families. And, and I was like, oh, this is horrible. And then, and then, of course, all the movie references. Always his freaks. Usually the bad guy, usually the villain, the evil albino. He approached other women who had been born with albinism, people like Margaret Breed. I definitely hadn't seen myself like that before when he approached me and you know, said, I want to photograph you, you're beautiful. Uh, definitely hadn't been in my vocabulary for thinking about myself. I started photographing these kids and hearing their stories and these adults. So I called Life Magazine and said, hey, I've got this great story. Six weeks later, it was a major spread in Life Magazine. Well, then someone said, it's not just about people with albinism. It's about celebrating all difference. Would you come and photograph our families at our chromosome 18 conference? It was in San Antonio. And I'm thinking, the hell is a chromosome 18 anomaly? I had no idea. Chromosome 18 anomaly is a genetic defect that can produce a whole range of severe malformations. Were you shocked? It was like I got slapped in the head, punched in the stomach, it ended. I, I thought, what is this? We're having a baby. And we find out that this baby is born with a chromosome 18, and that's what you see. Can you make beauty out of a trisomy yeah. 18? Well, no, because there's gorgeousness there. This is, that's gorgeous kid. That's Pauline. That's Rebecca. These kids are, are superb. Ellington, these are all from the chromosome 18. Remy, she's stunning. She's amazing. Rick is the subject of a film to be released later this year. Award-winning documentarian Joanna Rudnick followed him to a conference of families whose children have chromosome 18 anomalies. Rick took pictures of him the way I saw him. Not the way everybody else saw him, but the way I saw him. And it was the first time I had somebody tell me how beautiful he was. He didn't tell me he was small. He didn't tell me he had fat cheeks from his steroids. And they were the most beautiful pictures of this blue-eyed little baby. Have you seen the positive exposure presentation yet? Yes, we have. So last year, Yes, right? last year we saw it. Ah, Widati's hope lies in young medical students. He's a regular on campuses around the country. I really want to hear your opinion on that.
And the idea is to put the humanity, make sure that that humanity is in medicine, to make sure that we see not a disease, a diagnosis, but a human being. I know we all know that there's a lot of science in medicine, but I can assure you there's a lot of art in medicine as well. That is so important. That that's you're not. It's not what you're treating. It's who you're treating. It's not what you're treating. It's who you're treating. And that's ultimately what pro-lifers need to do. Convince the culture the preborn child is a who, not a what. And if they are a who like you and me, then just as we should be protected and respected, they should as well, no matter what difficult circumstances someone may be in. So how do we convince people the preborn child is a who? Again, believing in the power of questions, I like to ask another general question. I'll ask someone, do you believe in human rights? And inevitably, supporting abortion or opposing abortion, they will consistently respond, yes, of course I believe in human rights. And then I'll use my iPhone and I'll Google image a, a one-celled embryo just after fertilization. And I'll show them the picture of the one-celled embryo and say, okay, what about this human's rights? Now, when they look at that picture, they're going to say, that's not a human. So then I ask a question. I'll say, well, what are the embryo's parents? Is the pregnant woman human? Is her partner human? If yes, wouldn't it follow that that embryo must be human? Because two human parents aren't going to produce a cat or a dog. We know that beings which reproduce sexually not only begin their lives at fertilization, but reproduce after their own kind. Dogs will produce dogs, cats produce cats, and we know humans will produce humans. Not being able to dispute that basic fact, the abortion supporter might say, well, even if technically the embryos of the species Homo sapiens, the embryo's not alive. So I just ask another question. Is the embryo growing? Is that one cell growing into two and four and eight and doubling every time? If yes, wouldn't it follow by the embryo's growth that the embryo must be living? If yes, the parents are human, wouldn't it follow the embryo must be human? And if we believe in human rights, then what we know to be a living human ought to have the same human rights as you or me. But to convince someone that that moment of fertilization is when the living human begins her life does often take a little more work. Yes, the embryo might be alive. Yes, the embryo might be human. But at that one cell stage, not looking like you or me, can that embryo really be equal to you or me? And that's often when I will draw on the power of stories to help people get a clear image, no pun intended, in their mind of life beginning at fertilization. And the story I'll use is one that I've borrowed the concept of from Richard Stiff, a philosophy professor, uh, and, and then I've kind of personalized it a bit. And so he has come up with this very powerful analogy uh, to a uh, Polaroid camera. And so I'll often say to someone, you know, let's think about, you know, this old technology that's making a comeback. You go to wedding receptions, often on the table at the reception, there's a, a Polaroid. Take photos, you know, let's see your experience of our wedding through the, your, your eyes. And so let's imagine that you have one of those Polaroid cameras. And let's imagine, I'll say to someone I'm trying to convince the pro-life perspective, uh, trying to convince them of the pro-life perspective, I'll say, let's imagine that uh, you take your Polaroid camera not to a wedding reception, but on vacation. 
And let's imagine that you go on vacation to where my dad is from. Now, I am I'm born and raised in Canada, uh, but my dad is actually from Scotland. Okay, that's right. He's got a great Scottish accent. So a lot of tartan in the house over there. So anyways, right, I'll say let's imagine that you go on vacation to Scotland. And um, while you're in Scotland, you go to a very, very famous place in Scotland. Okay, right, it's called Loch Ness. Now what's in Loch Ness? Nessie, right? So I'll say, now let's imagine you're on a boat tour of Loch Ness. A couple hours into your boat tour, you're taking photos with your Polaroid camera. You look over your shoulder, and you suddenly see the Loch Ness monster. All those humps and bumps are sticking out of the water, so you excitedly point your Polaroid in that direction. You snap a photo, and the little card comes out. Now, just as the card comes out, and you're holding it in your hand, you begin to shake it. Just as all that's happening, Nessie goes underwater. I'll often ask someone I'm dialoguing with, would you be disappointed that Nessie has disappeared? And sometimes they say yes. So then I say, okay, well, what will console you in your frustration about her absence? And they'll say, well, I've got the picture. And I say, right. And, and you're not just thinking this is for my photo album. You're thinking this is valuable. This is gold. It's worth money because I can sell it to newspapers and magazines. And I can convince people that what they thought was a myth actually is real. So you're excited about what you're going to earn from this picture. And so let's imagine as you're shaking it, looking initially at those brown black smudges you always see when you take a Polaroid photo. As you're shaking it, someone on the boat tour with you has never seen the technology of a Polaroid camera before. So they excitedly grab the card from you to have a look at Nessie. But when they look at that paper and see those initial brown black smudges, they incorrectly conclude the photo didn't take properly. So with great disappointment, they rip it and toss it in the lake. I'll often ask the person I'm dialoguing with, would you be upset if they just did that? And they always say yes. I say, okay, right, we Scottish people, we've got a wee bit of a temper. Okay, we've got Braveheart in our blood. So imagine Braveheart comes out and you get angry at this person for destroying the photo and imagine they look at you like you're crazy and they say, was just black brown smudges why do you care so much about black brown smudges now you'd reply it wasn't just black brown smudges everything about the image of the Loch Ness monster was captured in an instant we just needed time to develop and so the same can be said about who each one of us is here today who the person is that we would dialogue with that each of us, as unrepeatable, irreplaceable individuals, began our lives at the instant of fertilization, the instant of sperm egg fusion. We just needed time to develop. In my experience in the abortion debate, not only do we have the challenge of convincing people the preborn child is human, like you or me, we also are now facing a challenge where we have to convince people that that child has a right to use the mother's body. A few years ago, I was debating a philosophy professor, and in front of 200 students, as we were um, uh, addressing the topic of abortion, he went first and made a very interesting argument. He stood up in front of the students and said, I'm going to concede tonight that the embryo is a human person like all of us in the room. I'm going to admit that that embryo has a right to life, like all of us in the room. But, he said, I'm going to argue abortion is still justified. 
And the way I'm going to argue that is to make the case that living human persons with the right to life do not have a right to use another living human person's body without their consent. He also realized the power of stories, and he proposed the following story to the audience. He said, I want you to imagine that you have a child, and your child is dying of kidney disease. The only way to save your child is a kidney transplant. I want you to imagine, he said, that no one in the world has the right body type to be able to donate a kidney and save your child's life, except for you, and you're the parent. He said, would it be nice of you, as a parent, to donate one of your kidneys to your own child? Yeah, it would. Would it kill you? No, it wouldn't. Would it save your child's life? Definitely. But, he said, should the law force you to give one of your kidneys to your child? No. No, the law should not. And just as the law should not force a parent to give their kidney to their child, the law should not force a parent to give her uterus to her child. What do we do? Well, as a person of faith, I began to pray because I did not know what to say. And so I uh, realized the power of impression, and so I looked calm, cool, and collected externally, fake writing notes in front of all these students, dying inside. And so I began to ask for some inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I actually sensed God speak to me. Now, he didn't speak in, a, in an audible way, but I did sense a very clear statement being said to me. I sensed this. Stephanie, he said, I made the uterus for a different purpose. Now, that's all I got, which often is the case when you pray. You just get enough to think about, but you still got to do the work. And so I start reflecting on that over and over. Buzzer goes off. Opponent is done. I get up. And then a moment of, of epiphany came. And so I looked at these students and I said, Professor Snedden makes a very compelling argument until we ask ourselves a question. And the question we have to ask is this. What is the nature and purpose of the kidney versus the nature and purpose of the uterus? Because when we ask that question, we come to see in our answer why a parent should not be obligated to give one, but should be obligated to give the other. I said the kidney exists in my body for my body. The uterus, I said, is very different from the kidney. I said the uterus exists in my body every single month getting ready for someone else's body. I can live without my uterus, but my offspring cannot. It's an organ unique from all the others in that it exists more for them than for me, and they can therefore claim a right to it in a way a child could not claim a right to their parent's kidney. A few days later, it was reported back to me that the professor said to his class he was up all night trying to think of a response. So I like to say that that reinforces the power of prayer and uh, the power of questions. Bearing in mind the power of questions, as well as I mentioned earlier, the power of stories, I want to move to the third portion of my talk this evening, which is about how to reach the heart. Because as compelling as the pro-life argument is, and as great as the analogies and questions are that I've shared, 
I've encountered in certain circumstances, it's difficult to convince people even with all of that. And I'll, I'll give you an example. A few years ago, I gave a talk at a college campus. During Q&A, a student came to the microphone and said, what about rape? If you've got a woman who's not consented to the sex, she's now pregnant with a rapist child, shouldn't she be allowed an abortion? And typically, when that question is asked, I immediately respond with an expression of sympathy. And I say, as I said to her, I agree with you. Rape is a horrible injustice. I have friends who have been victims of sexual assault. We need to give special care and counseling and support to these women or men who may have been abused in that way. And I said, we also, I think, need more serious consequences for the rapists themselves. And then I say, I do have to ask myself a question. And the question I ask myself is this. Is it fair to give the death penalty to the innocent child? Now, on many occasions, people have responded with, I never thought of it that way. This girl? No. She said, yeah, but... And I thought, okay, maybe a question wasn't enough for her. Maybe she needs a story. And so I said, okay, well, imagine this. I said, imagine you have a woman who has consensual sex with her husband on a Monday. On a Tuesday when she's walking home from work, she's raped by a stranger. So that when one month passes and she takes the pregnancy test and she sees it says positive, as she's looking at that test, she doesn't know whether the father of her child is her husband or the rapist. So I said, let's say she hopes it's her husband's child. She carries through with the pregnancy, and after the baby is born, they do a paternity test. The results come back and show the child's father, not her husband, is the rapist. I ended my story with a question. Would we allow that woman or anyone to kill the newborn child because of the father's crime? She said, no, of course not. So I asked another question. Why then? Would we allow that woman or anyone to kill the preborn child because of the father's crime? But, she said, that would never happen. I mean, you made that up. So I thought, I have more. So I said, okay, well, actually, there was an article in the New York Times several years ago that interviewed an abortionist by the name of Dr. Wickland, this woman still doing and supporting abortion. And yet, interestingly, in the article it said, Dr. Wickland described her horror when she aborted the pregnancy of a woman who'd been raped, only to discover after examining the removed tissue, when she had to make sure she had all the body parts out so nothing was left inside and could cause an infection. As she discovered, the as she was examining the body parts afterwards, she realized the pregnancy was further along than she or the woman had thought. And in that moment, she realized she had just aborted an embryo, the woman, and her husband. I couldn't see it together. Even the abortionist was horrified. After telling now a real story, I asked the question, if it's horrifying to kill a child conceived in love, isn't it equally horrifying to kill a child conceived in violence? Because the common denominator is that in both cases we have a child. She looked at me and said, yeah, but, but nothing's going to happen. And so there was a long line of question, questioners behind her, and so I had to say, you know, I have to respect the other students, give them a chance at the microphone, but please feel free to come speak with me one-on-one -on -one at the end. 
And sure enough, the end of the event happens, and she's at the podium, wants to talk. And so as we're going back and forth, I started to wonder if my questions and my analogies and my logic wasn't getting through here, because maybe the problem wasn't here. Maybe it was here. And I started to be concerned that I could be speaking to a victim of sexual assault or to someone who was very close to someone who'd experienced that. And so I changed the direction of the conversation a bit. And I said to her, you know, I said, I have a friend who was molested as a child. I'm one of about five people that know this. To this day, she's never told her parents. And I said, there was a season in life where my friend was triggered by memories of the trauma that had happened. And I was one of a few people that she disclosed this too. And so realizing I was a friend but not a counselor, I encouraged her to get professional help, but I journeyed with her, and I even went to one of her counseling sessions. And I said, I'll be honest, my friend never got pregnant. She was too young. But I said, what I observed in journeying with my friend to healing is that when someone's been sexually assaulted, they've been traumatized. And whether they get pregnant and have an abortion or not, the abortion is not going to take the trauma of the sexual assault away. And this deep sadness washed over her face, and she said, yeah, 10 years and counting. I said, I am so sorry for your sadness. At that moment, I completely changed direction, set aside all my arguments, all my logic, to just meet her where she was at and sit with her in her pain. And I asked a different line of questioning. I asked her things like, how are you doing? I asked her if she felt safe or if the person who hurt her was still in her life. I asked her if she felt she got adequate help and counseling or if I could connect her to a support person or a group in her city. And I watched her whole dynamic and dynamism change. She went from a hostile, angry, frustrated person in the crowd to a calm, reflective person in our one-on-one -on -one encounter. And was reminded of something my friends at the group Justice for All have said. When someone asks about rape, they're not asking if the baby's human. They're asking if the pro-lifer is human. Do we care as much for the person in front of us and their pain as we might be cared for the child in the room and what could happen to that child? Yes, we need strong minds, but we need the most tender of hearts. Yes, we want to win the argument, but we also want to win the person. I'm reminded of something that I read in the book, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. Imagine three buckets of water in front of me. Imagine one has cold water in it, one has lukewarm water in it, and one has hot water in it. Imagine I put my right hand in the hot water. I put my left hand in the cold water. After about a minute or so, I take them both out and put them in the middle bucket. The hand which came from the hot water is going to think the new bucket of water is cold. The hand which came from the cold water is going to think the new bucket of water is hot. Interestingly, they're both wrong. The new bucket of water is lukewarm. But the previous experience colored the present interpretation. When we're dialoguing with someone, and we just can't seem to get through to them, we want to pause, and we want to ask ourselves, what temperature was the bucket of water that they were in before I met them? Where are they coming from? 
and how could that be influencing how they're receiving and learning the message? And so the types of questions I'll often encourage people to ask that direct us more down towards the path of the heart than the head are things like these. I'm curious, you can ask, where does your passion come from? Who knows what they'll say? But they might reveal that their mom's had an abortion or they drove a friend to an abortion clinic. And then we can ask, how are they doing? How are you doing? Another question to ask is one I asked of a student named Noah who was very angry, very hostile, and I knew nothing logical would get through to him. And so I let him do more talking. The louder he got, the quieter I got, doing the exact opposite of him. And there was this one opening where I could get a word in edgewise. And so I very gently and very slowly said the following, Noah, what does someone who thinks like you want someone who thinks like me to understand. Again, who knows what they'll say, but that might be the moment of sharing, which will become the moment of connection. On another occasion, I was dealing again with a very hostile male student, and he revealed his sister had had an abortion. And I started to think, maybe he's so angry because he thinks by me being against abortion, I'm somehow against his sister as a person. So I looked at him and I very gently said, what do you think I think about your sister? And interestingly, that one question moved him from um, agitation to calm. And he said, you know what, you seem like a reasonable person. You probably wouldn't hate her. And I was able to say, well, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I don't hate your sister. I have friends who had abortions. And I've seen the pain that that has caused them in their life. But I've also seen my friends find healing and be able to save other children from what their child faced and spare other women the suffering they've faced. I don't hate your sister, but asking him the question was the moment of breakthrough. There's so much more that, that I could say. And as was mentioned, my book will be on sale at the back table. And, and at the end of the night, I, I will be, be there to sign sign copies, but I, I want to leave you with just this, this little personal reflection. As I mentioned at the beginning, when an injustice occurs, we have one of four roles to play. Victim, persecutor, bystander, defender. And I'm here before you because of the witness of people who stepped into the role of defender. People often ask, you know, how did you even get involved in pro-life work? And I say, I was a child activist because my parents were defenders of pre-born children because they prioritized involvement in the pro-life movement, both of them active in the local community group, uh, going to conferences, encouraging that I go to conferences, going to protests and marches. My mom is now a retired nurse, but was an active nurse at the time, and she volunteered at a pregnancy care center. I'd often go with her when she counseled girls. She was in the counseling room, and I was playing with fetal models or doodling on letterhead. And then when those babies were born, mom would go to the hospital with flowers, and I'd come along and peer into the nursery and, and look at the newborn baby. And then in my first year of college, 20 years ago, I was 18, and uh, I went to a pro-life conference, and that conference changed my life. There was a speaker there, someone who has been a, a featured speaker here in your program, and it was Scott Klusendorf. And at that weekend, he said something in which I felt the Holy Spirit deeply convict my heart. He said, there's more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. In that moment, I sensed that I needed to work full-time to save them because of the witness of my parents, 
the witness of Scott and the witness of so many others that I have met and been privileged to come to know in this pro-life movement, which is made up of people who reject being a bystander, who reject being a persecutor and say, I will be a defender. That same teacher that told me that story, I'll never forget, he was a good teacher. I'll never forget, the theme of that year in our class was to reflect on two questions. What kind of person am I becoming? And what kind of person do I want to become? Notice that neither of those questions involve the past. They involve the present and the future. So the question is not, what kind of person have I been? The question is not, have you been a bystander? The question is not, have you been a persecutor? Because you may have. The question is, where am I now? What do I choose today to make a better tomorrow? God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I think we will move into the, the 10 minutes of questions. So if you don't mind setting the clock on that, that would be great. Thank you, Lauren. So I'm happy to address questions. We have people with microphones over here, and we might have another microphone. So please just raise your hand. We have two microphones. Here we go. So please just raise your hand, and whoever I hear in the microphone, that question I will answer. I didn't address it all, so I know... <laughs> There's a question. Okay, we have someone here. Oh, great. All right, so I really enjoyed your talk. Your illustrations were phenomenal. Um, but my question to you is, if you were to describe the end in mind that you're trying to achieve, what would you say that is? I would say that my goal is to make abortion unthinkable, to make sure that it doesn't even enter into the hearts or minds of someone who's in crisis. Now, do I think the law should reflect what's true and just and good? Absolutely. Regardless of what the law says, I want to make sure that it's not even in the heart of someone to respond to their crisis by way of having an abortion. So that's why, although I believe there's, there's a need to work in different arms of the movement, we have the political arm, we have the pastoral arm, we have the educational arm, um, I've sensed the giftings the Lord has given me is to work in the educational arm of the movement to reach the average person kind of at a grassroots level to be convinced that abortion isn't the solution to their problems. Another question. What would you say to someone who says if abortion became legal in this country, then all these women are going to have back alley abortions mm. and your fatality rate is going to skyrocket. So I would start by agreeing if someone has an abortion illegally, that's a problem. The way it's a problem if someone has an abortion legally, because the point is that it should be unthinkable. And so if it's happening illegally, it's not yet unthinkable, so then I haven't achieved my goal. Now then I would say, consider this, so I would tell a story. I would say, let's imagine you are a nurse in an emergency room, a man comes to you with broken, swollen, bruised, bloody knuckles. So as you're bandaging him up, you start talking to him. You say, what happened tonight? And he said, I was beating my wife tonight, and this resulted. Then I'll ask the question, 
Would we legalize spousal abuse and give men boxing gloves so that the next time they hurt their wives, they don't hurt themselves? Now, the abortion supporter will look at you like you're crazy and say, uh, no, of course not. Why would you even think that? And I'll say, well, don't worry. I agree with you. I don't think we should do that. Here's the reason why I bring up the story. The story identifies the principle, and the principle is this. We don't legalize behavior which harms innocent individuals just to make the behavior safer for those committing the harm. And if we can agree on that principle as we see it lived out in that story, then let's look at the context of abortion. Because we know the preborn child is human, to allow abortion to become legal, to make it safer for the woman, is to make it safer for her when she's committing an act of homicide on an innocent child. And so it wouldn't be ethical uh, to, or, or, or proper for a civil society to allow the harming of one innocent in a certain manner so as to make it safer for those committing grave and irreparable harm on that life. Great question. Any other ones? Maybe if you could keep your hand up if you have one in the microphone uh, holders, we'll come to you as I'm taking this next question. We'll have the next one ready to go. Uh, yes. How would you compare Canada's view on this issue versus the U.S.? And then kind of as a follow-up, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, um, how will that impact Canada? Certainly, I often say, you know, how, how things go in the U.S., so goes the world. <laughs> and so uh, you very much are leaders, and you can be leaders for good or leaders for ill. Uh, I'm reminded of the, the words from uh, Uncle Ben to Peter Parker in Spider-Man. Remember, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. And so America has a lot of power to influence the world, and unfortunately, so much of the world has been influenced by this mindset of support for abortion, and Canada is one of them. Uh, we're very liberal on abortion. I would say, interestingly, we're, we're even more liberal than you in, in a sense where you have some states that would have parental consent laws with 24-hour waiting periods. Uh, we don't have any of that. So abortions can happen through all nine months of pregnancy. You're not considered a person under the law until you have fully proceeded in a living state from the body of your mother. Uh, plus, abortions are funded by our health care system. And we also have the challenge of Canadians generally not respecting free speech the way Americans do. And so often as a pro-life movement in Canada, we first have to fight for our right to speak as born individuals to then be able to speak for pre-born individuals. So that's a little of the difference, but, but certainly the arguments are the same, kind of what protesters do and say is, is very similar. And so I think if Roe v, uh, when Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, there still will need to be work um, <laughs> done on the hearts and always making sure, right, would it just move to the states? So are you going to have some states that are safe for the pre-born and other states that aren't? So again, we always want to make sure we're working on the heart and then be a source of support for other countries, not only my own, but certainly I'm finding European pro-lifers are having a difficult time, you know, with funding and getting their messages out because no matter how much censorship there is in Canada, there's far more, for example, in Western Europe, England being an example where there's profound censorship directed on pro-lifers. Hi, I'm not sure what my question is, but just thinking about the initiative around people who shout their abortions, that's you, are you familiar? Just hold your mic a little oh, closer. Sorry. Okay, thank you. The notion of people shouting their abortions. Oh, like I had an abortion, I'm proud of it type thing. Yes. yes. What's the response to that? Because hmm. it's a very feminist kind of yay women empowerment thing. Yes. And I, I don't know how to process that or speak to it. 
Yes. So when people proudly declare their abortion, I would say that's in reaction to those who have declared their abortion in the context of regret. So people involved, for example, in Silent No More Awareness who are trying to let other hurting women know, hey, I regret my abortion. It's okay to regret yours. Unfortunately, some who don't wish to acknowledge their regret because that's painful, and we humans resist pain, there's this sense that if I boldly declare I had an abortion and another woman says, yeah, me too, that if she had it and I had it, then I won't feel as bad. It's like when you were in high school and you didn't do homework and a classmate didn't do theirs. You're like, oh, whew, thank goodness. It's like, wait, them not doing their homework <laughs> doesn't change the fact that you're going to have consequences for not doing yours. But we feel better. Misery loves company. And so I would say that, uh, unfortunately, this is a reaction to that, and it's a justification of one's abortion, which means our reaction needs to be to the heart and not the head. So I would ask, um, I'm, I'm interested to the extent you're willing to share, and since you're wearing it on a T-shirt, I'm sure you are. Um, what was your experience like with abortion? In what ways are you proud of it? Would you ever want your daughter to have an abortion? Would there have been something that if it was different, you wouldn't have actually had that abortion? What, what about your circumstances would have needed to change to make you carry the term instead of have an abortion? What do you think we should do for women who are really choosing it, not because of the abortion, but because of their circumstances? How can we actually improve their circumstances? And those more open-ended questions can result in a sharing. But ideally, you want to go one-on-one. -on -one. When I do events... Pro-life uh, pro events and there's protesters. I always want to, as much as possible, speak to them one-on-one -on -one because that's where you can really go to the heart. There's always that power in the group. I remember once being on a campus where one of the protesters came over by herself, and I was taking her through the whole pro-life argument. She was just leaning on the fence, and she was completely engrossed. And you could tell she was moving towards the pro-life perspective. And she said, "You know what's funny?" She goes. All my friends over there, and she pointed to the other protesters as she's holding on to a hanger. She said, you know, all my friends over there, they told me not to come over and talk to you guys, but I'm not sure why. And I'm looking at her thinking, honey, you're changing your mind. That's why they didn't want you to come over here. So, so if you can isolate and dialogue one-on-one, -on -one, then I think you can do a better job reaching that person. I'm from West Africa, and um, how will you respond to communicating the truth when you have a group of people. We have a pregnancy crisis center, and all the time, the parents accompany the person that is pregnant, and they keep imposing. She has to abort this baby because she is my daughter, and I pay for her to go to school. She has to achieve that. As somebody in the crisis center, you have to deal with the pregnant girl, the boyfriend, and the family. How will you overcome going to their heart mm -hmm. to make sure they leave your center going home to have this baby? Because it's very difficult. It's so easy in the U.S. You deal with people one-on-one. -on -one. But Africa, where I come from, Sierra Leone, you have imposers mm -hmm. and the family want them to abort the children. Absolutely. Very important question, and, and I would say that's why, you know, when I mentioned at the beginning what our role as defender looks like in response to abortion versus in response to bullying, we have to use our powers of persuasion, not just for the woman in crisis, but anyone around her who would be influencing her. That is the boyfriend, the mother, the father, and so many other people. 
And so we have to be asking the same types of questions to them that we would ask that woman in crisis, making the same types of analogies to them that we would make to the woman in crisis. And then also think this is a head issue, but it's also a heart issue. And, and praying for the discernment, the wisdom to know what tool should I use, what angle should I come from. So, for example, if it's a mother uh, def wanting her daughter to have an abortion, I would ask her about her own experience of having that daughter. And is she grateful for that daughter? And, and the more you can get her to talk and share that she loves her child, she's grateful for the child, life has been difficult, but she wouldn't give, give that up, then once she's made that connection in her mind, then you bridge that to, well, if that's been good and your daughter's been good, then what about your grandchild? And wouldn't you regret the absence of your daughter in your life? And so isn't it possible that you will regret the absence of your grandchild from your life? Um, but the issue could be, you could even ask, do you know anyone who's had an abortion? And she might say, yes, I had one. And I tell you, I, I remember being outside an abortion clinic and watching the people going in. It was not boyfriends and girlfriends. It was mothers and daughters. And with every mother-daughter walking into that clinic, I thought, I can almost guarantee you those moms have all had abortions. And again, misery loves company. It's the idea of if, if I had an abortion when I was my daughter's age, and she's my age, her at that age now, and she doesn't have an abortion, what does that mean about what I did? But if she does have an abortion like I did when I was her age, then maybe what I did was okay. So in a sense, as you're trying to prevent someone from doing an abortion, you have to actually employ post-abortion counseling to the people you're speaking with because they have likely facilitated or some way been involved in abortion, and they're justifying their own involvement by pressuring someone else. So a lot of, you could say, exploratory questions need to be done about their own relationships, their own past choices, and, and trying through stories and questions to communicate a message of mercy, a message of hope, and a message of perspective, that life will be hard. But can we make it beautiful? can't always make it easy, but can I make it beautiful? And the stories of people that have made the choice to carry life in poverty, in rape, at a young age, none of those factors change, but their perspective changes. And so that's really our job is to, is to paint a different picture, to paint a picture where if you can carry to term in this difficulty, you can still go to school, you can still get support, and, and I want to tell you the stories of people who've been there and done that. So I hope that little bit was helpful. I know that I think we're at the end of the time clock, are we? Yes, we are. So uh, I will let um, Diane come up and, and wrap things up. Thank you.